1: And welcome to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. It's Tuesday, 3 p.m., a uh, kind of dreary day at robertaspizza.com in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Nonetheless, we're going to have some fanciful, sunshiny talk. Um, first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, White Oak Pastures. Uh, their cattle are raised in a manner. That is... Uh, it stood the test of time. It begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, fertile coastal soil, cattle allowed to roam, pastures graze freely on native uh, grasses all their lives. Yeah, they're all natural grass-fed beef, and they're available in all of the whole food stores in the mid-Atlantic states. We hope that you will support their program through your purchase of our beef through one of these whole food stores. For more info, www.whiteoakpastures.com. Today's show, we're going to talk to you I've been wanting to say this all week, the man of steel, <laughs> <laughs> Joel Buckowitz of cutbrooklyn.com, knife maker extraordinaire. And we also have Harry Rosenblum of the Brooklyn Kitchen, uh, kitchen um, brooklynkitchen.com, also a knife aficionado. Um, I met Joel huh, about three years ago for a story I was shooting for Edible Brooklyn in his 10 by 10 foot uh, space. I mean, how, how big is your studio now?
2: Um, I moved into a storefront space, so it's about 3,000 square feet now. Yeah, it's grown uh, a little bit. Yeah, that's a little
1: bit bigger. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing all right. <laughs> um, Madam, I, I think you had just moved back to Brooklyn pr- maybe a year prior, mm-hmm. and we're trying to establish yourself uh, in the field, in the trade. Uh, Joel had priorly been living in Georgia. Um, prior to that, what school did you go to? The New School. The New School uh, mm-hmm. for Literature.
2: Uh f- writing actually, fiction writing. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moved down to Georgia finish a novel that uh ended up turning into something more tangible. And uh Harry, the Brooklyn Kitchen. Uh the array of knives you have. The the t shirt you have on right now, which <laughs> I wish people could see, is a chow dot com t shirt of here, let's see what kind of knives we have on there. Um Wow. And a Band-Aid, a paring knife, <laughs> a boning knife, a Band-Aid. Fantastic. It's a great shirt. But if you've ever gone to the Brooklyn kitchen and seen the walls there, it, it's just uh, chock full of beautiful cutlery.
3: Yeah, we stock about knives from probably almost a dozen different manufacturers. Um, yeah. And then vintage knives when I can find them. Vintage yeah. cleavers, sabatier, uh, carbon chef's knives. Nobody's really making a decent carbon chef's knife anymore.
1: So. Yeah. Joel, is that something you'd ever venture into? <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. I actually
2: make a, a, a carbon steel knife. I've been sort of um, playing with it over the last couple of years to get it going. But, well, it's uh, not
3: really in production yet, is uh, it? Uh,
2: Well, I can make it. <laughs> no, no. It's can not being turned. Can I, can I buy it? Stamp? Sure, you can buy one. <laughs> All right. I'm yeah. I got right. one in my bag you can have. Sure. All right. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Excellent. Um and Joel was Harry Brooklyn Kitchen were they some of your first customers uh three years ago when you were trying to bring this line to the public
2: oh yeah they were um uh, you guys were hugely supportive yeah absolutely um uh it was it was a little you know it was a little tough getting sort of in that little studio kind of making something happen there was a um article uh, a girl did article about what I do in the Daily News, and then that was it. That was things started to the happen. And then, yeah, yeah. I went over, and I think it was maybe by your suggestion. I went over and talked to, to uh, Harry and Taylor, and they were like, you know, awesome. We'd love to hang a couple of your knives and, and see how they do, and and it turned out really, really well. Yeah, yeah. We
3: we couldn't even keep them in stock. I mean, Joel would get them to us as he could because he was doing a lot of private, you know, doing yeah. special orders at that time. And as soon as we would have one on the wall basically you know one of the things at the brooklyn kitchen is we encourage people to try knives before they buy them every single person who had the budget who tried a cut brooklyn knife bought it the moment they yeah. used
1: it well what is the budget of your knives right now i remember from pairing to you know the seven inch or eight inch chef's knife um it seems steep, but at the same time if you go to corin you know and try to get like a mac knife or a blue steel knife it's tenfold that amount
2: Right, right. It's really a matter of you know the hours that I spend on them. It just takes a long time to make a knife completely by hand. Um, uh, so uh, I don't re- I don't really make an eight-inch chef's knife anymore. It's changed to about a, a nine and a quarter or so. Yeah, uh, th- things have evolved and continue to evolve. You know, uh, that knife goes for about four hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and down to my paring knife that goes for um, around two hundred. Mm. Yeah,
1: and but there's something distinct about your knives mm. uh coming from a background <laughs> where you initially learned knife making mm-hmm. um you were surrounded more by military knives rather than kitchenware is that
2: suitable? yeah it was a it was a really outdoorsy setting my parents um live on a farm down there that's about 400 acres so at the time um when I started when, you know when I made my first knife uh, the sort of impetus was a, was a, a, a that I stopped writing I, st- I, I stopped writing for about three months because I was afraid that you know, I sort of ran out of steam, and I was afraid I was going to lose it all So I figured, you know, just like cut, turn turn that spigot off, and let it let the let the cistern fill I, up I, again.
1: What What was the novel about, actually?
2: Uh, let's see. That novel was about um, several people who, are like groups of people who, were making pilgrimages to Jack Kerouac's grave over in Lowell, up in Lowell. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. A far departure from uh, knife making at this moment. But. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you initially started looking at military style knives. Maybe uh, did you go to conferences? Did you go to shows? How, how did you?
2: No. Uh, I mean, I was doing a lot of hunting and fishing. Um, so uh, it just seemed, you know, and, and uh, I, I stopped writing. So I needed, but I, I found that I really, really needed a creative outlet, something to do with my hands, something to. You know, you don't think of it as like making something on a daily basis when you write. But if you write for, you know, five or six hours a day, you're you're creating something. You're building something and making these little sort of creative, creative offerings that I would think of as like, you know, throwing a little penny in a well a day, yeah. you know. Um, I had to do that or else I would get all crazy, you know. Um, I mean, not like, you know, crazy, but <laughs> it, it didn't feel good. I didn't feel good about myself. So, um, uh, so I made, you know, a little piece of furniture, a little... Um, I made my dad a set of canoe paddles, this kind of thing, and then it just seemed like you know the 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 thing to do to try to make a knife. And the first knife I made yet yeah, was more like like a like a hunting type knife. And I just I didn't go to any conferences really. I just there's a, there's a huge knife show in Georgia in Atlanta called the Blade Show. It's like the big show every year. So I did go to that to buy a grinder. Um, after I had. Uh, made an attempt to make my first knife because, you know, really what I wanted to do was learn the very basics. You can learn, you know, you can read about how to do it in, I don't know, a day, you know, and then you just got to get out there and injure yourself and (laughs) ruin things and set, set stuff on fire and that's it.
1: And um, speaking of shows, Harry just told us that he's going to Japan soon to uh, where Seki. In Seki for the
3: uh, Knife Festival in October.
1: What What is that Knife Festival entail?
3: Um, I mean, my understanding is that every year in Seki, which is one of the the largest centers for knife manufacturing in Japan, there's a lot of other places that knives are manufactured, but Seki is kind of like the heart of it, um, that they just have a big, giant festival where knife makers come from all over the country and I believe all over the world to sell their wares share their wares um, show off what they're doing lots and lots of demonstrations of traditional technique um, forging of knives uh, forging of swords um, and we were invited this year to go as the guests of kikuichi um, whose knives we sell and we really like they're a fantastic uh company that are making uh knives in japan the company's been in business since about the 14th century um, so they have a little bit of history Behind them, yeah, <laughs> uh, they much like a number of other Japanese knife manufacturers um, started out as sword makers, and then in the 1860s, the Emperor of Japan outlawed samurais, and so they no longer had a market, yeah, <laughs> uh, to sell all their swords, and so they switched to making cutlery full time, yeah. Um, so they've been making you know kitchen knives and cutlery you know, for about 150 years. Um, but the history of the company goes back about 700.
1: Right. Joel, I could see uh, you slipping into the market of making samurai swords. Uh, if no one else is doing that <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. I could probably corner that market. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many samurais here in Brooklyn. Actually. <laughs>
3: there probably are. Yeah, there probably actually. are.
1: <laughs> yeah. We could create a renaissance. <laughs> um, I, I also want to talk about the steps because, you know, people obviously know what a knife is, uh, what it looks like, how it feels. It's, it's uses, uh, But I don't know if a lot understand how it's formed from forging, you know, from actually getting the steel from the mill to all the steps. Do you guys want to go back and forth and kind of explain the the initial processes of even getting the steel and what Mm -hmm. you do with it?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's see. From my end, uh, my interest has always been sort of in making uh, since I since I became really engaged by it. In in creating just simply the best knife I can make every time that I make it, so um, I right from the start, you know, from the the reading and the talking to folks that I had done um, these days, steel comes. I I realized that these days steel comes from the mill. Um, There's really high tech stuff that comes from uh, these various different mills and you know things that are made for aerospace and all kinds of funky different stuff gets reused for knives and it's just super super pure clean beautiful steel that'll hold an edge. And know, these mills
1: are local, national, international?
2: Well, let's see. I mean, there are various companies. Uh, for a while, I was using a, a steel by a company called Crucible. It was out of Syracuse. I've now um, switched uh, uh, to a company called Carpenter that's out of Reading, Pennsylvania. So it's important to me to use um, American-made steel as much as possible. Um, not even as much as possible. I think absolutely uh, there's, you know, there's some really great steels coming out of Sweden, um, tons of great steels in Japan. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that, you know, it seems like the right thing to do to me to use American-made steel. And it's, at, it's you know, some of the stuff that's coming out of Carpenter these days
1: is,
3: yeah. I think, the best steel in the world.
1: So. I mean, do you guys see a distinction between American steel, between Swedish steel, between Japanese steel?
3: I mean, I, I would say that there is, uh, at this point in time, I mean, there's quality steel available um, in, in from lots of different places in the world. I think that... Um, You know, you can get really great Swedish steel, but if you can get it locally, you know, in the United States, there's no reason necessarily, you know, to use the stuff from Sweden if if Joel is able to get great stuff out of Carpenter. I mean, something that happened with the American steel industry is when all the automakers were having trouble, uh, a lot of the steel companies got into big trouble because they were all, you know, most of the steel in the United States goes into cars. Yeah. And so the steel suppliers got into a lot of trouble because the car companies were not paying their bills. And so then the steel companies weren't getting paid. Um, you know, I mean, historically looking at a place like Bethlehem steel, um, with which went out of business, I mean, all of the, you know, the big old steel mills in Pittsburgh, um, you know, have been shuttered now for 20 years or so. So, I mean, I think that, um, the high end steel, like the stuff that Joel is using, there's a lot of in the United States, the cheaper steel, um, you know, there's not as much
1: going on. Yeah. I mean, so no one sits there and recycles cars and the knives
3: uh they do um but most of the most of the steel that gets recycled in that way i mean with cars getting recycled gets shipped overseas and recycled um they're actually on a sort of side note there was a really interesting article in new yorker a few years ago about this giant car crusher in newark that actually just shreds cars yeah uh but then they don't they send the boats full of the shredded steel to china yeah um where it gets melted down huh. and recycled
1: interesting
2: Lots of guys um, uh, sort of across the country make steel out of truck springs uh, that's a carbon steel that's really usable I think it's fifty one sixty that's a um, a little a little tricky to heat treat, but really good stuff
3: yeah mm-hmm. and it's a and it's a pretty pretty readily available source. I know of some sort of budding knife makers um, who are always looking for truck springs <laughs> yeah
1: so uh, if you're missing your truck spring, uh, yeah. <laughs> go to Joe he might have a couple things laying around so after you guys get the steel um, the the next step is what drawing out the shape of the knife prior to cutting? Uh,
2: yeah, for me. So, so, uh, I don't, I don't forge my knives. I don't, uh, heat and hammer them. Um, I, uh, use, I guess what's referred to as the stock removal method. So, yeah, I, you know, what I usually do is just take a, a, a blank from the previous batch and draw the shape. Yeah, draw that out on a sheet of steel. Yeah. That's come from the mill.
1: And how big is that piece of steel, uh, relative?
2: That comes from carp, or a carpenter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, f- let's see, four foot by three foot.
1: Four foot. And because I know at Brooklyn Kitchen, I love sure. that you have the stairs, um, you yep. know, yeah, laden they, with those lamps and yep. cutouts. And, yeah, yeah,
3: the cutouts that we have from Lamps and Sharp are actually laser cut. Yeah. Um, and they have a big machine that laser cuts the, their steel for their stamped knives. Yeah. Um, so I guess to take a step back to explain sort of historically the two sort of, the two major ways that knives are constructed are either they're stamped or they're forged. And the hallmark of a stamped knife is if the blade is the same thickness from the tip all the way to the to the back of the handle, and if that steel goes all the way through, if it's a full tang, and you can see that, um, that generally would be a hallmark of a stamped.
1: Yeah, knife. and the tang is the part that goes into the hilt.
3: Sorry, the, the tang. Uh, the, yes, yeah. okay. Yeah, the tang is the part that the tang is the part that is covered by the handle. Got it. Yeah. Um, that would be sort of a, a a hallmark of a stamped knife historically. And then a forged knife um, would usually would have a much wider the the um, the top of the knife, um, the back of the knife would be much wider than when you get down to the blade. And then usually you would have what's called a full bolster, um, where you actually have a full amount of steel that is the size of the handle, yeah. uh, right about where your where your index finger kind of like thumb what
1: Global go. has on the mar- mass market.
3: Uh, not not quite yeah. Global like actually. Gustav. Yeah, oh, more okay. like more like more like a Wusthof um, or something like that. Um, and that would be a forged knife where actually the steel is heated and formed and then um, actually machined um, where they're they're removing material to to sort of make the the shape of the blade um, i think you know in the modern age sort of knife making has gotten a little bit different so yeah. you know the stamping now is not done in the way that we would imagine a giant you know cookie cutter stamping out yeah. the steel it's done with a laser so the the uh, the pieces you're referring to are our laser cut um, leftovers from gotcha. Trump, Um with the cutouts of the knives leaving the negative space excellent
1: um, and do you you laser cut
2: your steel after? No, no. Um, uh, let's see. You know, uh, um, I'm you know I'm, I'm working on a big batch now, and those will be water jet cut, I believe. But um, uh, uh, you know, no, the the fully sort of custom handmade stuff is all cut out. I cut it out with like either bandsaw or an angle grinder. Yeah, and um, then to really rough shape, and then shape it on my grinders.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, we're going to take a quick break and forging ahead. I won't <laughs> use that other pun. Uh, we'll be talking more about the process of knife making and possibly the future of uh, Cut Brooklyn and the Brooklyn Kitchen's stockpile of cutlery. I'm Michael Harlan Terkel. You can listen to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here with Harry Rosenbloom of the Brooklyn Kitchen and Joel Buckowitz. Buckowitz of CutBrooklyn.com, Knife Maker, Extraordinaire to the Stars. Um, (laughs) Um We we were just talking about the differences between uh you know the two major types of knives, uh forging and the steel cut stamp. Um and we left off right when Joel was talking about how he uses what was the water cut? water jet? Water jet cut. Um and actually cuts a lot out by hand, uh, mm-hmm. on band so, so I mean you can imagine the sparks flying um at his shop. I've I've seen him. I've seen his glove that he do you still use that same glove?
2: No, I've been through several Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: you know, he he wears a glove when he's on uh the bands trying to, you know, cut out uh, these shapes, as well as, you know, kind of sharpen the edges and form this uh, piece of steel. And there are no knuckles. Uh, and it's not like cool biking gloves that have no knuckles. I mean, there are no knuckles because he's ground them down. Uh, I'm I'm surprised he even has skin on his knuckles half the time. Usually there's duct tape wrapped around um, those little indices. Uh, it, it's quite a sight to be seen. Um, do you see it? You can I think you can find pictures on Edible dot com had yeah. some and a couple other places. I think Chow dot com when they did a obsesses video of Joel's work, you can kind of see that close up of those amazing
3: gloves. Yeah, I mean I think that's one of the things that really sets Joel um and his knives apart from a lot of the you know, a lot of the other manufacturers, um, is that if you you know, if you look at those cutouts from Lamps and Sharp, they are able to run on a machine and cut out, you know, boxes full of blanks and then they have someone who sharpens them and they heat treat them and they put handles on them and then they send them out the door um joel is cutting them out one by one yeah they're not you know he's not sending them on a giant computer milling machine that's cutting out 40 of them while someone else is sharpening the knife joel is cutting it out And then has to do all the other work himself as well.
1: Yeah, and it gives it distinction. It gives it, um, you know, a a true soul. But at the same time, it also gives you a capacity uh, Mm -hmm. because you have to be the one uh, doing all that work. So after you cut out the knife, it it gets sent away.
2: Um, Let's see. Yeah, it gets. uh, I have to cut it, drill it, uh, chamfer the holes, uh, put my name on the tang. Excuse me, and then I send it off for heat. The steel that I use is. pretty finicky heat treatment it's got to be held at very specific temperatures um, you know up over two thousand degrees for really specific amounts of time and then it has to be quenched cryogenically um, and <laughs> so it has to be basically sent to like a military grade facility yeah and where mm-hmm. do you send it to um I use Peter's heat treatment they're in outside of Pittsburgh yeah mm-hmm. they're I mean they're fantastic yeah they're awesome
1: so mm-hmm. I mean that's not something someone hoping to make a knife at their house. Can do. They can't heat treat steel.
2: Well, they can actually. I mean, if you were to use a truck spring, or if you were to use a really simple steel like 1095 or 1080, or um, some of the really simple carbon steels, yeah, you sh- hell, you can you, heat treat that with a with a uh, torch. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be held at such specific temperatures. You can um, 1095 is often heat treated by color. You know, so you get it to a certain sort of huh. glowing cherry red, and then you quench it in um, a, 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 the right kind of oil. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, the higher tech stuff has to be held within like a five degree um, uh, temperature range. Really, yeah. really specific. So,
1: And I mean, the grades of steel, uh, you know, mean something. They, you know, the higher grade of steel or the better the steel, the better the blade.
2: Um, yeah, there. Well, he, man, there are so many factors involved, yeah. you know, uh, geometry of the grind and of the edge itself is a huge factor. Um, a knife, if it's made out of steel that can't be, that that can't be hardened and can't stay tough at that hardness, you can't grind it thin enough so that it'll actually hold, it'll end up chipping or warping on you. So, um, that's, you know, uh, but then again, some really simple steels like 5160, 5200, um, those carbon steels. There are guys out there who can heat treat those um, uh, materials to, uh, you know, to give them some pretty amazing properties.
3: I think the yeah. thing to remember though is that you know, in common parlance, we use the word steel. Yeah. But with that, I mean, steel is a blanket term that refers to a metal that is mostly iron and has other things in it. So they're all different alloys. I mean, yeah. Basically, you know, there are you know almost an infinite number of types of steel that you could make by changing the amount of. Nickel, the amount of you know chromium when I mean, you're talking about stainless steels, adding you know how much carbon is in it, how much molybdenum is in it, you know that we call all of them steel, but they're all very different, and they yeah. all they all act different, they all take an edge in a different way, they all need to be ground differently, they can take different hardness levels.
1: So when factoring in what type of steel, uh, were there specific ideas of how sharp you wanted it, uh, what kind of you know uh, sharp, uh, I mean cut you wanted to the blade, uh, mm-hmm. and if so, what were those factors?
2: Um, well, let's see. For me, I wanted to be able to have a really, really thin, thin, thin edge, like like transparent edge, and I wanted it to be able to hold um, uh, and uh, hold forever, and also resharpen quite easily. Yeah. So I had to look for a steel that was not only. Um, uh, I wanted to be able to get it up to a fairly high hardness. That, that, that's that's one of the factors that helps it hold an edge for quite a while. But at that high hardness, it also had to be quite tough. Um, the, I mean, why
1: do you want a paper thin edge?
2: Oh, just because it moves through whatever you're cutting so much easier. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you feel um, uh, with a knife that's a little bit thicker. Say an older knife that um, has been ground and ground and resharpened and resharpened. The the um, where you actually grind the edge bevel will be quite thick, and when you cut through something, you feel drag. Yeah. Um, you know, when you use one of my knives, I think you, you just don't feel drag. It just sort of drops right through.
3: Yeah, and
1: rather than um, pushing.
3: Sure. I mean, one of the things that, that, you know, was always a really good example, um, you know, allowing people to use Joel's knives, and one of the reasons I think that people always purchase them after trying them is how how easily they go through things. And we usually keep carrots and celery around for people to try. If you cut a carrot with, you know, even with a brand new German knife, like a Messermeister that we sell, it's a fantastic knife, and I, you know, completely stand behind it. Mm -hmm. If you cut that same carrot with Joel's knife, the... Carrot, the the best way I can think of to describe it is like it has a mirror finish. When you put that piece of carrot into your mouth, it is so smooth because the knife is so sharp and has cut it, you know, at such a, you know, cellular level basically. And I'm
1: I'm sure, you know, to a cellular level, you get more taste off more surface area. So, I mean, your knives make. Yeah. it tastes better or it keeps too more. Like
3: you
2: can cut an apple and you know it can sit in the kitchen for a minute and then you can serve it five minutes later and it won't brown
3: yeah you know? or you because, can cut an onion and you're not going to start crying because you're not right. destroying right. you know you're not ripping those cell walls really? apart
1: have you ever promoted yourself as my, you, these knives don't make you cry when you cut onions I mm-hmm, mean no. there's some kind of tagline <laughs> in there <laughs> there's probably uh, something there because uh, those goggles that people will wear when trying to cut onions right. are absolutely silly and <laughs> we need a way to eliminate that from the market I'll but, get my people yeah on. <laughs> You got people? No, I don't no. need people. <laughs> yeah. I have a wife. Yeah, I'll get my wife on it. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, different sharpnesses, but also what's really distinct about your knives are, well, initially I I thought of them as bowling ball colored uh, um, hilts, uh-huh. uh, handles, uh-huh. um, and you you have an array, but it's a specific type of plastic that you use.
2: Yeah, it's a it's um, I wouldn't really call it a plastic. It's a it's a glass fabric laminate. So. Yeah um it's so a, you wouldn't call it a plastic uh, at all call it plastic, you know. <laughs> <Literally>, i mean
1: <laughs> i'd call it this yeah no
2: i mean that's you know it's a little bit like uh these terms I, I i because because i feel like i use the best materials i can find i i'm relatively careful with them you know like stamped i wouldn't i, I don't call my knife stamped knives and like i wouldn't say it. yeah. if it's a stamped knife with a plastic handle then you know that brings a certain a certain idea yeah. to people's minds but you know no i don't think that's what it is yeah um, but the materials—it's—it's a—it's—it's it's a, let's see—it's a there's a, a really thin glass thread that's woven into a fabric, and then that's stacked like you know, say for a quarter inch material, there's maybe, sixty layers of it stacked together with a colored resin or a uh, uh, like an epoxy. Yeah, or, yeah, like an epoxy basically. Mm-hmm. And it's great because it's um, it's super tough pound for pound. It's like tougher than steel. You can you know smack a piece on a table and it's not going to break. It doesn't. It also doesn't absorb water. Which is great in the kitchen. It's so gonna um, stink. Yeah, yeah, and you know, w- woods that absorb water can sort of swell or shift on the tang um, uh, th- and lift off, and eventually you need new handles. This stuff, you know, is very very stable. Um, it's also for uh, on my end, it's I can. It's really easy, and um, uh, it takes up really nice angles. When I sculpt the handles, I sort of sculpt in these different angles on them. Um, uh, so, and, and the beautiful colors it comes in as well. You know, it's awful, awful on your lungs. You have to wear heavy duty <laughs> respiration equipment, uh, because it's basically fiberglass, you know, glass fibers yeah. in the air. So
3: but. one of the things that I think is, you know, the, it is one of the things that really sets your knives apart aside from also the blade shape, which I think is the other thing that really sets the cut Brooklyn knives apart. But the thing about the handle that's so nice is that if you grind it, when you, when you grind that material, um, not flush to the to the layers of the of the glass fabric you can see all of them the layers. Of, you can see the layers mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that yeah.
2: i really i taper um the 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 two things that you're really going for in the feel of a knife or um you want the weight to you want it to sort of be a, a fairly heavy piece but it should feel really light so you're working towards um uh, power and balance are the two yeah. things that you really work for perfect center of gravity on that thing yeah yeah so one of the ways i do that is that i taper the handle backwards so um toward the toward the back well it's it's tapered in both directions the the blade obviously gets thinner um, as you move out towards the tip but also the handle is uh, thinner in profile um, at the very end versus like right up uh, toward the toward the heel
1: yeah mm-hmm. um I know we're going to start running out of time, and it's it's crazy yeah. to even think of trying to explain knife making in a concise, you know, 30 minutes with quips and phrases, etc. But <laughs> I, I do want to touch on what Harry just spoke of, the shape of your knife. And what was the inspiration behind those, and what kind of shapes do you use now, and what kind of shapes do you hope to start producing?
2: Um, well, let's see. Like I said, I think, you know, I really have just always wanted to make the best knife I can possibly make. And this was uh, me just kind of following that path uh um the edge specifically what my 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 attempt was to or what i was hoping to do was create a knife that would work well um on the board like a german knife has got that big front belly up up towards the towards the tip where that a a big german knife just stays connected to your cutting board basically yeah um a more french knife or like a a japanese knife will come yeah. yeah will come off the board and you do back cuts and push cuts with it right so, I wanted something where you could that would do both of those well. It's quite tricky uh to get um the edge so that it will do that so that's that's tricky. The other thing is that I wanted um my tip to be able to move through things very nicely and easily so the tip the first like two and a half to three inches of my knife is is really thin it's like quite flexible. you can actually flex it on the table yeah um and that's beautiful uh for it it works really nicely for doing like side cuts through onions, you know. Um, uh, anything like that where there's, you know, where you have to move it completely through something that works really, really nicely for that. So, um, and then the handle, you know, that just there, that sort of little hump in the bottom is, gives a little more power on the sort of upstroke. Mostly I just wanted the handle to kind of get out of the way because, you know, when I first designed a kitchen knife, I had, I I didn't realize, but you really don't hold a kitchen knife by the handle. So as I started to learn that, I realized, well, then you just get the handle out of the way and it's just really for balance, you know? And to sort of, um, uh, you 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 do have to have an overall aesthetic idea behind the piece. So as that came together, I just kind of followed it. Yeah. Mm.
1: I mean, Harry, are there specific ones that sell better than others? I mean, um, his kitchen knives, his paring knives, or are people looking for more traditional French-style, Japanese-style cleavers?
3: Um, I, I mean, it really, you know, the, the thing about knife shopping is that it is a completely... Um, it's, it's different for every person. I mean, the reason that we let people try knives is that it really is different. And some people have picked up Joel's knives and they don't like them. Yeah. And, and that's a personal choice um, based on how they feel in your hand. I mean, we sell, you know, there, there are knives that I picked up that I can't stand um, and they're very uncomfortable to me. But then there are some that I really like, uh, Joel's I happen to really like. Um, but it really is, you know, I encourage people to try them because, you know, we have knives, you know, I can, I can show you four knives that are all of equivalent quality and are all of about the same price that all feel very different, Yeah. different weight, different balance, different blade shape, um, different handle shape. And it really is, it, it's a really, it's a personal decision, um, For sure. what knife yeah. you're going to buy.
1: Um, I wanted to touch on a big coup to Joel's business too. Um, an announcement, uh, <laughs> in collaborating with William Sonoma.
2: Yeah, yeah, we're going to launch in January if all goes well and I don't uh, lose my mind. (laughs) We're going to launch in January. Yeah, so it's going to be a busy fall for me. Because
1: how much steel is coming to the shop right now?
2: Oh, I've been waiting on 1,000 pounds of steel for a little while now. 1,000
1: pounds. And are you Mm -hmm. hand-cutting all this? Uh,
2: No, no, these will be cut out elsewhere.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And what kind of knives are you making? Is it a signature line for Williams-Sonoma? Is it?
2: No, it's going to be, let's see, it will be... um, my 9-inch chef's knife, and then a 5-inch petty, um, So a sort of uh, oversized paring knife, and then a, a small paring knife. Yeah. So those three. And mm-hmm.
1: are we going to be seeing those replicas or same knives at the Brooklyn kitchen?
2: Uh, if they want them, yeah. We yeah. have talked about that, but absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want them. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, I, I get 10% commission. For that, <laughs> yeah, so right. so um, deal maker. if you've not gone to the Brooklyn kitchen obviously check out the knives but everything else there too it's one of the most fantastic kitchen shops in all of new york and then if you're looking for a specific knife uh, to gift to a person that is something both sincere and special CutBrooklyn.com. Ask for joel and Harry's
2: actually got some knives on
3: his wall Mike. i do actually yeah. I, you know we uh we actually got a couple of knives from joel we have a, a pairing knife and a chef's knife that um are not actually for sale because we kept selling them and then nobody could try them yeah and so we do have them on the wall if people want to come and try them and that way they can try a cut brooklyn mm-hmm. um without having to go bother joel because uh, he's got a lot <laughs> of work to do get yeah. out of the shop yeah <laughs> a little bit of work you know get off the lawn
1: a thousand pounds of steel i no <laughs> appreciate both you guys being on uh talking Thanks. your chops and um yeah check out some knives uh you know they're cut above the rest and uh Thanks for listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm Michael Harlan, Turkell, your host. Thanks again to White Oak Pastures for sponsoring. That's WhiteOakPastures.com. Shout out to Jack Inslee, producer, Nat Wiener, engineer, and hope to see you next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.